Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Hey, everybody. It is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. Today's guest is Gabe Larson. He is the head of marketing at Meta. We have known each other for some time. We actually met. He was invited to and actually we were co-host for an event I ran for many years called the Sales and Marketing Alignment Summit, which maybe I'll bring back. We'll have to see. What well, yeah, You should. You should. Yeah. That was a classy event. It was well, I appreciate that. that. And then this thing called COVID happened. And I was like, oh, we got to do something different. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. No, it's not going to work. But either way, I follow his career, follow his content. He is another marketing leader that I appreciate, understands the importance of aligning with sales and, and talking with sales leadership and really gets it. So with that game, I just want to tell, want you to tell people a little bit about your history, your background, what you're up to, and then we'll dive into the conversation that works. Love it. Yeah. Again, it's so fun to be back on. How long since we had chatted, Jeff? It's going to be like it? three or four years. I don't know. I feel like COVID 20, it all is like one long year. It, it feels like that, right? And at the same time, it's like, hey, we pick up right where we left off. So I love reconnecting. Yeah. Thanks for the reach out. Just a little bit about myself. Yeah, I'm currently running a small division marketing here at Meta of formerly Facebook, still getting used to that change. Been here a couple of years, was part of an acquisition from a customer support company called Customer based out of New York City. Joined with them fairly young, about 10 million in ARR, and then ended up selling to Facebook about two years into my stint for a little over a billion dollars. Great transaction and have really loved my time at Meta. And I think we'll dive into some of the cool things that we've been thinking and doing bringing kind of the startup mentality to this idea of B2B and in meta. Anyways, prior to that, that's where Jeff and I met. I was at a company called InsideSales.com and ran the marketing team there, really trying to disrupt this idea of field sales and build a high velocity model that was a predictable, repeatable engine for sales and marketing to produce the growth results that they want. So been in the startup space for a dozen, 12, 15 years now before that. Man, what was I doing before that, Jeff? I thought I wanted to be a consultant. I spent five years in the Middle East doing some consulting. I was in New York thinking I was a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs for a little bit. I've messed around, but I'm now a true SaaS kind of guy. So I'm here. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all your experiences, one of the things I love about having people like you, leaders like you in the show, is that those people that have those very experiences and those, dare I say, non-traditional career tracks, I think it adds so much color to how you lead as a leader, especially when it comes to collaboration which more than ever we need because B2B is getting more challenging and complex and you add and throw digital in there, things even get more crazy. But selfishly, beyond catching up, that's what I always love to do, I really wanted to explore the idea of how, as a B2B revenue leader, do I leverage the metaverse? I think for a lot of people, and obviously it depends on the industry, tech B2B folks have probably gone about this already, but folks outside of tech may or may not have really thought about this and I wanted to get your perspective on how have you seen organizations across different industries kind of leverage the metaverse to their advantage? 
Yeah, you know, this one's, I think, still interesting and it'll play itself out. I get asked it a lot because I happen to work at Meta. By no means am I some guru on what Mark Zuckerberg does, but I can tell you some of the things that we've been doing and the way I think, you know, maybe you guys should be thinking a little bit about it. Um, yeah. I do have my Oculus sitting right here. And so I am a, a fan of some of the things on that. The game's pretty cool. But I would say a couple of things. I mean, COVID certainly introduced this, right? <clears throat> Two sides to this spectrum, and we've got to find a better balance. One, I don't really want to go into the office all the time. And two, having a screen like this or four screens as I have, eh, it's not right. It's not optimal. There's something missing. We all fill it. And it's something over here that is by definition, something that's a little more 3D, something that's a little more interactive. And yeah. so I think when it comes to the way in which we work as marketers, We've got to change, we've got to adapt. And I think that's going to be one of the primary areas that I try to play around with, that we try to play around with to make the work experience better. Because again, I'm not in the office and no offense to Zoom, that's not cutting it, the screen that I look yeah. at 12 hours. So how do we make it more interactive, more in-person without actually being in-person? I love that. I think there's a lot there. The way we work needs to change and I'm loving some of the tips, tools, and techniques there. So that would be one where I'd start. My, probably my okay. favorite area. Secondarily, I think another way to think about it is just small bite-sized steps. You know, sometimes you're like, do I need to build an app for the Oculus or so It's like, why what are you talking about? No, you know, I think the, the nice iteration is think video, right? So video, okay. man, we found so many different ways over the last, I'm not saying still say it's over the last handful of years to bring video into the day-to-day -day business. I mean, as a customer service company, I still spend a lot of my time in that realm. I love coming across companies when they have a challenge with one of their consumers, there's a link and all of a sudden we're on video or they're showing literally the furnace that's not working and they're like yeah. working to solve it remotely. And I'm like, that's so powerful. Demos, you know, I was just debating with somebody the other day in marketing around gating demos, not gating demos. What should your videos be like this hero asset? Either way, I'm like, God, oh, so great to see video play a bigger role in us. Maybe get away from some of this like concept of gating and marketing. Yeah. So you've got so many fun things around video happening. What's one more layer on that? You know, like what if you were able to provide, I want to use the word 3d here, but like a 3d experience of your product, something that was more real, like right now I can just pop up and watch a quick video, but what if I could watch more of an interactive video with somebody in this concept of the metaverse where I could then interact with the product in a way that, man, it takes demos, not light years from where we are, but like, yeah. oh, I could actually touch that thing or can I play with it in this area? Like I can experience it in a more real way. I think that's fascinating, right? So I love when people kind of approach it, how do we take video? and take it maybe two or three steps further and bring it into some of these concepts of quote unquote, the metaverse. So that'd be number two. I think number three is, and this doesn't apply to everybody and B2B might be slightly behind. It always is with B2C, but you are opening up a whole new avenue. I mean, with tools and technologies like the Oculus, yeah. um, we talk a lot with our B2C companies around support in the metaverse, right? Like you're actually, you have your product there just like you would in the app store, just like you have it on Amazon, or just like you have it on some sort of third-party site and someone's accessing that, how do you run support in that world? So it's such a big area, an unknown area that I think it's worth starting to contemplate, 
it might be a new business idea for you, or it might be a new channel for you to market. It might be an interesting way to advertise to core audiences, because again, think of it like a mini worldwide web or think of it like an app store. So those are three things that I think are kind of fun. And just to summarize, I don't mean to ramble too much, Jeff, but it's all good. You know, no, one, great I, stuff. Wade week work is fascinating to yeah. baby step it, you know, think video, where could you take video further? And I think you'll inch towards this concept. And then three is recognize it is a whole other platform that could be, what if a new app store is as big as Apple started? What could you do with that? Target your audience better with an ad. Could you, is there a way you could service your customers better in, in using that kind of communication platform? So those are three things maybe to get the conversation started. No, I love that. And I think it is a little bit of the chicken and egg with B2B because, you know, as you said, B2B follows B2C well, to it's always years. Yeah. It, it's always right. And I think as a B2B revenue leader, if you've got to justify there's a critical mass of customers on the platform. And I don't know what that looks like for your business, but one of the things you made me think of was, I think this should potentially be very helpful for B2B companies that have very complex or science, highly scientific products. Because to your point, what sparked in me was it's much easier to give a 3D demo that I can touch and feel and take things apart in this virtual environment versus trying to explain that over a Zoom call or something like that, where the customer can't actually unscrew the thing and be like, oh, that's how that, that's how that works. And I spend my time in the early part of my career in healthcare sales, but we run across device and surgery reps. And so that's another one where like, you know, oh, you're talking oh, to surgeons. Yeah. And sometimes there's so many broad use cases, but you know, B2B tech is one that I think might take a little more time, but man, if you start to branch into like education, my kids, they're learning about, I spent five years, I said in the middle East and I really love yeah. the culture and love it out there. And so they're literally taking a tour of Dubai. They did it two nights ago in a way that you can't get through a buck. You know, wow. now you talk about medical. I mean, now all of a sudden I don't have to you know, I can run full surgical procedures in a way that is not a video. It's not a book. I think that's transforming that space. So it's kind of like the AI, these types of things, they take time, this generative AI chat. We'll find a way to bring it in. Hopefully it won't take over the world and all that random stuff, but at some point, we'll probably be dead. Some industries are a little better than others. So I love that. That's a great example of surgery. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the for a space and time, I, I feel, and you can tell me if you feel the same way, where there's just a lot of noise. I think as I look at it, COVID forced companies to do digital, whether they wanted to or not, some better than others. Many of them were bubbling and fumbling and probably still are. But if nothing else, it created a ton of more just digital noise, right? Because everybody's yeah. like, I got to do something and I don't know how to do it, but just some money at it and, and hopefully it works. And I think what I start to see is that customers are getting overwhelmed and they're just tuning out because to them, it all looks like white noise. So you yeah. can't stop doing digital as a marketer, as an organization, how have you seen or what, or some of your thoughts on how do you actually, and we always ask this, right? But I think more than ever, it's more important now than ever. How do you break through and actually have a compelling conversation that people want to listen to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, this is the question always of, how do you do it better, faster, stronger? And especially when we're all kind of trying to do some of the same things. And I, this one has become more of a passion to me. And I don't know, you hear these buzzwords, inbound marketing or even ABM. I've started to get a little bit of a, 
like a gag reflex when I hear the word ABM for, for some reason. I, I don't know. It, it feels a little bit like that children's story. I got a couple of kids, the emperor's new clothes. I don't know uh -huh. if you remember them, the yeah. story where it's like, I think most people know it, but long story short, these children end up laughing at this emperor who's basically not wearing any clothes because these swindlers trick him into believing that he's wearing these magical, expensive, beautiful clothes and they happen to be really nothing at all. And I don't know, some of these marketing principles, Jeff, I hear about it, and I'm going to use ABM just as an example. You know, I talk to peers sometimes. What do you hear? It's, oh, ABM is so important. It unifies sales and marketing. Oh, oh, it does. Okay. It's, it's a modern, you know, modern companies, GTM uses ABM or, oh, we use a one-to-one, -one, one to few, one to many, you know, and it's like, what the, what, what, what? But then truthfully, I follow up with those same people six to nine months later. And hey, man, how's that ABM program working? What am I hearing? And well, Gabe, it's a long place. So, you know, you don't really see ROI on ABM very long. I bought an ABM tool a few years ago. And truthfully, we just canceled it a, a couple of years later. No, or our ABM program is really just our general marketing program. Or I don't know. It just, I'm like, no one sometimes like this, this Emperor New Clothes type of thing. Like, hey, I thought it was supposed to be beautiful and change the world. And, and you're telling me it, it's going to take years and years and years to get an ROI. Like I don't have years. I got days. You know? Right. So that's one thing that's been, that's probably a little bit too much context, but something that's been cooking in my mind. The other thing that's really different is when you're at a company like Meta, I don't know, you know, there's just more constraints on you. Right. So I'm not saying I was like an email spammer or something like that. Like it takes me on average about six months to get the contract of a fairly small contract through for all the different things you need to jump through security, privacy, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I just operate in such a different world now where maybe you can't be as kind of scrappy and rugged as you once were. And you can get and stuff so, out faster. I've just been thinking some of these different ideas have been converging and I'm like, I still got to win. I still got to cut through the noise. How do I start to do that? And the bottom line is I was like, you know, I just, I have to start listening more than acting. Okay. And that sounds super simple. But one of the phrases I've been playing with is this idea of signal-based marketing. And what that basically means to me is, you know, look, I think there's some great concepts in ABM for those who actually think it means what they think it means. but. Targeting people, it's a great idea of sending them gifting. I, I've always loved physical gifts, you know, being more personalized. Like I like that stuff, but you got to understand it's still, what is this? Do I want this crap or do I, I'm not even a, a one of your buyers. You thought I was your buyer. I'm not one of your buyers. You know, I'm not in the buying cycle. I bought a product two years ago. You know, it's still noise. It's still like, dude, I don't want this. Like, why are yeah. you hitting me up right? One of the things we've been playing a lot with is the concept of signals and the idea can really start to, I think, spread and grow, but in some companies I think are good at this, but putting this into principle, I'll tell you, Jeff, okay. it's ask a lot of marketers, it's all duct tape and mail wire. It's so damn hard to do because if you really were able to identify the 15 or 20 or 30 signals that lead to great customers in your business. And you were able to capture those and put those in a machine and then utilize them in an effective way. It's a really difficult, man. And I'm all open for listeners. If you felt like you found some ways, I've got a couple of things I've been doing the last five years around this, but long story short, let me get tactical just for a minute. In our business, we found, for example, Shopify, right? Like if mm -hmm. you buy Shopify, if you're somebody that we think is a prospect and we get a signal that you've bought Shopify in a very yeah. simple concept. That's a gr that's great for us. When you buy Shopify, 
you're actually X times more likely to buy, you know, this, this tool set in meta. Now you start to add on some of these other signals and I won't bore you, but you could go through some of the basics, job change alerts, people hiring customer support reps of funding announcement, whatever it might be. Some of the stuff we all know, BDRs, a lot of BDRs are like, Gabe, I try to do this manually. That's why we hire an army of BDRs to try to figure this stuff out every day. Yeah. But if you're able to grab and just listen, just stop for a minute and you grab some of these signals and you start to mesh them together. And then all of a sudden you reach out to the right person, the right time, using the right signal. And you're like, oh yeah, I am interested. This is the girl, this is the right product that I want. And so again, man, and some of you might be like, Gabe, again, this is target-based marketing. This isn't that difficult, but I'm telling you guys, duct tape and bail wire, try to take, tell me what your 25 signals are right now that lead to higher predictiveness of your customer. Yeah. And then if you happen to know that, which your BDRs probably do, marketing probably doesn't, is it automated and systemized in a way that actually facilitates a nurture strategy? that builds from one person to millions of people. So if I have a target person, I now know that they buy Shopify and they're looking for customer support reps. Am I building a customer profile around that? And then starting to engage with them in an automated way that pings them around those signals so that I'm getting them at the right time and right way. It's tough. Marketo's yeah. tough. Outreach is tough. Bringing Zoom info is tough. Bringing in the database, the customer profile data. So anyways, to, the concept of listening more, using signals more, I think it's going to align better with the future of the market, certainly where I am, where privacy concerns matter a lot. So you begin spamming people. You got to be careful. You got to reach out the right time, right place, right program. Mm -hmm. Also doing it in a way that is a lot of companies are red ocean. They're in a place where it's, there's, well, we already have that tool set. And so you got to find a way to say, Hey, when are they going to buy? Finding the right time, right person, right place. I mean, signal marketing concepts, I think, could really resonate. They're building it and stuff. So anyways, I'm rambling again a little bit, but loving this concept. I think there's something to it yeah. to kind of cut through the noise as we think about making ABM real, thinking about inbound marketing and pushing those sides. Maybe there's a combination here. And I've been using the word signal marketing. I think it's interesting because it's related to a topic that I've been talking a lot about lately. Yeah, and the bark inside of my brain, which is dark social. And that's the proliferation of kind of these private forums and private groups where leaders are talking that vendors don't have access to. Right. Different right. than kind of like influencer marketing where people are out and talking about you. How do you get your name on the short list in these forums that you're not invited to? And so I, I was thinking as you were talking about listening, I would take it one step further to say like, it's the listening and then it's being able to formulate a different approach. Because a Absolutely. lot of times what we are struggling is the full, like force feeding people doesn't work anymore. They are shutting off and they're getting, and they're huddling together and talking about you behind your back, so to say. Yep. But there are a lot of times, like you said, dig digital signals, but we just have to get better as organizations of listening, interpreting, and then turning it into insights and action. And I think that is but definitely then, a skill set. realize the challenge, right? It's like we spend so much time going outbound to these people, which I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, I mean, you got to do that. That's kind of where I'm going. But it's like, I've talked to a couple of peers and look, Facebook, I happen to work at this organization to so take it for, it's the great assault, but a lot of Facebook groups, they're fascinating and they're doing a lot of stuff. Even I think in the B2B space, 
Nobody's monitoring those. No one's listening to those. Like, are you kidding? No one's getting signals from that type of stuff. You know, it's like, I can barely review my G2 crowd stuff, Gabe. I got so much ABM outbound stuff I'm doing, you know? Yeah. And it's like, what if, what if you could though, you know, what if you could monitor a community in a way that is actionable and interesting without just throwing bodies at it or having BDRs trying to spend hours and hours trying to sift through that stuff. And, yeah. and that's that concept of, man, have we done enough listening? Have we spent enough time on that side of it? I love your extra point. Because once you listen and you actually find a community where all these peers, these marketing leaders are chatting, I mean, do you have to do it manually again? Do you have to put your PDF? Is there a way you could actually get in there or action it in a way that's appropriate? And now you've got a signal that is extremely powerful that you're listening and is changing the game for your business. I just don't feel like we're talking about that enough because I'm hearing so much. Let's do more. Let's spend more on Google. Let's do more targeted outbound. Let's send more ads to them. Let's do. And I'm not saying it's bad. I just, it doesn't work sometimes. Well, it is many times bad when you are not doing more because of an insight. You're just doing more because, let me make sure I'm saying this the right way. You've seen incremental growth, but you can't explain where it's coming from. So you just say, we'll throw money at everything in hopes that it will continue to grow, but really not sitting down and doing the analysis to find out where your ROI is. I mean, I've seen yeah. plenty of times where you run campaigns and they're like, oh, it was amazing. I was like, that's an end of one. And yeah. <laughs> end of one is not a trend. End of one is the end of one. So let's do a little bit more experimentation. And to your point, I like this concept of listening. And I like that bit in the might the theme of the show. But listening from a marketing standpoint and then turning into insights and insights to action. And that, I think, why people might have a visceral, visceral reaction to that is that it forces you to slow down instead of just continuing to throw money on stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes more fun just to, you know, spread it across everywhere and see what kind of pops. And, and yeah. look, there's different phases in different companies. But as we, we wrap this, probably I could ramble about it for a while, but, you know, my, <laughs> Because I've tried to build more of a system around this and I'm trying to mentor a couple of startups to see if I can get some more technology that's designed specifically to do this rather than again duct tape and Baylor Marketo and Malreach and, yeah. and Zoom and some of the different your website altogether with the customer profile yeah. technology, et cetera. But one exercise I love doing and just seeing if you can do here is, you know, if you had to note down your top ten signals from a marketing team, yeah. do you know what those are? And is there a way to manually start to approach them in a way that's more strategic? That might be just a fun question to cook on for a minute. Yeah. Uh, why are you like that? to this nonsensical podcast? Not nonsensical. It's value-based podcasting. <laughs> I know that's a thing, but I just created it. Well, I'm not rambling a little, but I give my mark. Well, slightly off topic, so you did say something that made me think. So you've had a lot of experience with smaller organizations, and now you're kind of embedded in a really large organization. And we tend to talk to mid-market and large organizations. How have you been successful? I'm assuming you have been and you haven't just go with it. Being able to keep that scrappiness of execution in a larger ecosystem. Because I can see, and I've talked to leaders that are bought in, like, I've got to operate differently. You know, I'm in this Fortune 100, Fortune 250 behemoth, but we're just yeah. too slow. How can you yeah. start that process? Or what are some things that people should be thinking about? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm living every day in that type of stuff. You know, a couple of things I'd say. One is, a lot of times people feel like bigger organizations, that's always the myth, right? It's like, oh, you worked at Salesforce. They've got everything figured out, but you go look at Salesforce and you start pulling back the covers. Like 
got the same problems across the board. Um, so I still believe that a scrappy mentality of let's get stuff done and let's try to move quick still resonates and can still make things happen at larger organizations. With that said, you can't get it done by yourself, you know, like the cross-functional relationships because you own a smaller piece of the pie, right? Like we have uh, other products in the portfolio and they're upsell products to ours. And if you want to do a campaign, it's not like you just run it to market, you know, it's a joint campaign with another product leader. And then there's different levels of approval you got to get. So you call it politics if you want. I don't think it is. I just think it's cross-functional campaigns or cross-functional management. And you have got to be a winner for everybody. Back to some sports analogy for you Chicagoans. There's no I in team or something, right? Like you just have to set up a structure in an organization where you brief your counterparts and you get people on board and then you move it together. And then you can take one giant step, you know, whereas in startup, you can do such fast steps. But I do think you get these cross-functional people. The other thing is, I don't know if you need to go so big. I actually find it just like it works in startup land. There's ways to run experiments and small tests in larger organizations where you don't have to try to then like eat the elephant all in one bite. We, yeah. we did a huge campaign in France, millions of dollars were spent. You don't have that luxury in startup land to do an activation like that. Boy, no. was that an awesome experience. But we're doing some other small stuff. We grab a small group of people, we run it, and you can still figure that out and run kind of that tiger team. And that works, I think, as well as it does. What, what do they say? Nail it and scale it type of thing. That works in big. It works in small. So mm-hmm. there's differences. Like I said, there's some red tape. There's some approvals. But I think sometimes people lose that mentality and they're like, well, I got to let other people run it. No, you can still run it. You just got to bring people along to be successful. Yeah. So the two things I heard now, which I think are really good, and I, I will definitely take the, I'm still still in front. First and foremost, as a leader, if you want to kind of adapt this agile mentality, becoming a master at navigating the organization. Cause I think to your point, many of us get so focused on execution in our funnel and trying to make that faster. When actually you as a leader, your job is to get people out of your people's way. And so if you were able to master the matrix, I think that's one way to move faster and get things done and just have a little, like a peer group conversation, like, look, Jeff, I know we're trying to do this thing, da da da. I heard from what we're doing, like might be a little bit at risk. We have great relationship. Okay, go. And we'll see where it goes. The yep. other thing is the idea of running pilots. And so even if that's yeah. at risk, having a small team on your Love team, it. just like spin this up, see what it does. If it has some positive results, then we have something to stand on and say like, look, we ran this pilot, super small, but this is the back to your point, nail it and scale it thing. Yep. And then you have a use yep. case for your business partners. Yeah, that word, I felt more in startup land, like execution is obviously so important, but the word influence becomes extremely important. You know, my ability to influence others, to allow me to run a pilot, to join this endeavor, to um, run this campaign jointly, like your influencing skills become way just as important as your execution skills. Yeah. And probably even more so as you transition from a startup, small organization to a larger one, especially if you have that startup mentality, because I found when I've worked in large organizations, because that's just where my mind is when I've been in startups for many years, it's just, I just want to get stuff done. And that just doesn't work in a large organization, especially with people that have been there for years. It just does. Trust me, I've tried. It does not work. Uh, so influence is, I think, the currency 
to get things through a large organization when you're trying to be agile. So I, I like those two points. Yep. Let's transition over to related, but slightly different customer experience. I know you've spent a lot of time in customer experience. It's something I talk a lot about because I think the only way that you're able to actually provide an amazing customer experience is through alignment. I always start with sales and marketing and then the other functions. How have you seen AI and some of the new technologies being able to enable, able to enable, I think that actually is right, able to enable organizations to execute on CX in a different way, yeah. better, what's your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like the conversation of the year, the last couple of years, right? And especially we talk about here, this concept of the year of efficiency, and I think everyone's in the year of efficiency. Um, we just have to find ways to be smarter, better, faster, right? And so, again, I think these are types of things you got to go crawl, walk, run on. I just think it, be, it becomes daunting when you're like, how do I get Chad GPT to run my right. business? You know, it's like, it feels, it feels just like, I don't even know. I don't know starts. that I want it running my business, but okay. Wait. I know yeah, what you well, mean. You know, I whatever, know what you mean. Whatever it might be, or, you know, how, how do I use AI to transform my company? It's like, whoa, that's a big, big question, you know, but it's like, Hey, if you looked at your customer support agents and figured out what the top 10 reasons for calls are, and if you found an automated approach to have them and use the word AI, be able to resolve some of those concerns in a cost-effective manner. If you have it, that's probably where you should start. You know, got tons of companies and, and I do think both in B2C and in B2B, B2C makes it, it's such a clear example because we all know it, but right. you know, I buy stuff all the time and I'm always wondering where's my order, you know? Are you going to make me pick up the phone and call? And this was COVID. This was like the, well, I think it was one of the top search terms. And, you know, it's like, where's my order? Um, <laughs> but, you know, are you going to make me call and waste time with people and reps? And again, I'm using a B2C example here, but such a great thing to be able to build some life, some science into a, a, some sort of capability on your information page, your chat, multiple areas you can kind of get that into it allow someone to interact with a bot and say, Hey, here's my order number. What's going on with it? And have it spit back to you and say, Hey, this is more or less what's going on. I mean, B2B companies go to your login thing, for example. I mean, how many challenges to support people get with some user not being able to log in, you know, have you found a way to use AI in some basic fundamental, easy way to just deflect the easy answers and, and yeah. That's usually where I talk to businesses and we even talk to businesses. Don't get me wrong. I think that there's so many other ways you can go into. One of the things we're seeing is, you know, in the suggestions and supporting reps, it's, it's yeah. a customer support rep. It's so difficult as you can imagine, especially if you're a complex sale, you get a question and then you, you're often alone. I mean, companies think they do a good job. Sometimes it's called swivel chair interface. You know, it's like, I open this system, I open this system, I'm swiveling over here, I'm swiveling over there. I go talk to this person, I run down to the shipping department. Whatever it is, it's like, it's so hard to find the information needed to be able to piece together this, this, and that, and then give an answer that makes sense. Oh, my yeah. heart. Uh, you know, I didn't know this being not in this space as much, but my heart goes out to the frontline customer service agents who took the barrage in COVID and I still think are filling a lot of that. But that aside, supporting them with like real-time suggestions or feedback, you know, so it's like, Hey, I got this answer. And all of a sudden the system's like, I listened, or I heard that information. Yep. Here's what I would say, or here's what I'd recommend based on what this person is saying. And you're supporting reps and giving them information. So they kind of become that super rep, the iron man, if you will, of customer service. So I think there's so many fun things there, but it just gets a little bit, whoa, 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 whoa. Take a deep breath. 
find your top customer service request, B2C, B2B, then let's have a real conversation about deflection. How can you do that? And it could be some people just put it in support articles. That's obviously like level one. Right. Sometimes support articles aren't enough. Can you get something that's a little more intelligent or embedding intelligence into a chat bot on your support page? And now we're interacting with that and things like login information or where's my order? And you'd be surprised that might be 10% of your, now we're back in the year of efficiency. Now we're talking about it. So I think with these types of things, it's got to be crawl, walk, run, focus on the basics and then take. Yeah. Because when I talk about CX, you know, I am the master of trying to keep things simple. I really ask people to think about it from the perspective of the customer. That's really how I see CX. It is about, is the customer experience you're providing about you or about the customer? More often than not, it's about us. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. Marketers were notorious for, we need to get through these stages of the journey. Salespeople, same thing. I need to do the sales process. And, you know, I worked with a company a long time ago, and I think I've shared it on the podcast. And when I came in, the first thing I asked was like, well, let's walk through the sales process. Like, what does this look like? And at every Love stage, it was just friction. I was like, you really don't want anybody's money. Clearly don't want their money because it was so daunting. And the simple questions I would ask, they were like, what, we, we don't have an answer to that. I was like, and this is why you're seeing such a drop off. But it wasn't until somebody objectively sat down and said, okay, so I do this. Then what happens? We don't know. That's a problem. If you don't know, that's a problem. So I keep it simple. Flip when you're planning and you're organizing, you're thinking through, sit on the other side of the table and say like, how do we, how does the customer experience this work? We make this experience better and technology can do that. AI, whatever it is, that's great. But we sometimes get too caught up in, well, well, how how do we use AI? What is the problem first? And it's like, I had had somebody the other day, you know, be like, Dave, I don't want a Ferrari. I just want to, what did he say? Maybe he said a wheelbarrow or something. I mean, it was, he probably was listening the wheelbarrow. Now I'm thinking that doesn't make as much sense, but you know, the concept of just like, you know, man, my business just isn't, you know, I don't know if we were ready for all this fancy stuff to your point. Like we're still talking about trying to solve gaps and there's nothing worse than the shiny object syndrome. And I'll raise my hand. I'm a marketer. I always want the latest gadget to solve problems. I don't have to work as hard or something. But the truth is, right, a bad system or a great system topped on a bad process makes everything worse. <laughs> so if Thank you don't you. have a, a good system with Thank a good you. process, now you're talking about optimization. So I, I do love that, man. I got the squirrel syndrome like everybody, but boy, don't think systems are saviors. They're not. They do make bad processes even worse. Yeah. And if your strategy is terrible, technology will just speed up the terribleness of it. It will not make it better. Please stop so using. I, I wish that was not the case, but it absolutely, unequivocally. Uh, it's just like people are sold on like, oh, well, if we just get this platform, it'll, f-. I'm like, no, your strategy is terrible. Like you need to fix that. You don't need technology and don't blame them. The technology that's not working because your strategy is terrible, but that's yeah. another conversation for another day, maybe another episode, but <laughs> in We'll have you back on. That's, that's my way to, to secretly get you back on the show. That's right. Man. <laughs> if I. Look back in the past, like when we actually first met and we were working together on like this whole idea of sales and marketing alignment and how you as a marketing leader work working with your sales colleagues. I always love to, to talk to folks like you that have done it. What are some of the tips and tricks you would give marketing leaders, I mean, being listening or even CEOs of how marketing leaders and sales leaders can start the conversation to work together in a different way? And the reason yeah, I want to yeah. specifically ask you is I've heard a lot of folks say like, look, 
we have a good personal relationship, but like we just don't work together, which is dysfunctional. I'm sorry. It's just, I'm glad you guys like each other, but it's just dysfunctional. So thoughts of how to start that conversation. Oh man, this one's not going away. So let me throw out a couple ideas. I guess this but, podcast uh, will be on for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Look, man, you hit a, you hit one of those things. It's a problem that it, I don't want to say it's unsolvable. It's just, it takes constant. That's what it is. You know, it takes constant. It's not a one-time thing. You can't just solve it. It's like a constant thing. You got to review. Yeah. And with that, people have a hard time stick, the stick to it, if you will. So yeah, a couple things I would say to that one. I do think some organizations are finding some success with a leader who oversees both, you know, okay. depending on your size, a true CRO who doesn't oversee CX and for customer success and sales, but oversees like marketing and sales, you know, you put it under one umbrella, you kind of have one, I don't like the word throat to choke, but you know, one person on the hook and there's something there. So I think that's an interesting thing I've been talking to a couple of CEOs about, and I'll be interested to see how that stuff turns out. Secondarily, there's nothing like having rules of engagement. And I, this is where I think it gets a little tough because it's hard to systematize this stuff. But one of the challenges, I think we've made so much progress in this area, which is like lead scoring. If you would have asked me 15 years ago. When I was talking with salespeople around quality of leads, there was just nothing. I felt like the wild, wild west, the true, like the stuff you're giving me is garbage and you don't even handle the garbage I'm giving you. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there's a lot of sales leaders and market leaders have been able to come together and be like, Hey, there's a lead score. We kind of agreed to it. And we'll take these things that now come to us, hit a certain threshold. Doesn't mean it's perfect. I don't know. There seems to be some sort of like general agreement because there's a score. It's systematized, you know? Yeah. Boy, I feel like the handoff between, I've seen a few organizations do this, the handoff between, I'm going to say the marketing org, which could be marketing and BDR, to okay. sales. It's way too subjective. It's still using words like BAMS. I'm not saying even BAMS is that bad, but honestly, if you're talking about a word that was in, more or less invented by IBM in 1960, I try to make it a challenge in my life to not use things that are super duper old, specifically in work. I mean, right. Well, you can't, you just can't use that. It's not relevant. It, it, it's too old. I don't care what it is. Just don't even use the freaking word on me, you know, come up with something new, let alone it's not systematized. But I found a couple of organizations and I'm getting tactical for a minute who have been like opportunity scoring, you know, so a BDR will more or less with the marketing support, answer a certain number of questions. They'll fill out a little bit of a form in Salesforce. It actually calculates a score. Once it hits a certain threshold, it basically can then move over to the sales team. And it takes this idea of, I didn't really think that person was qualified, or I didn't think the BDR did good enough, or the marketing information wasn't strong. But now again, you've got some sort of measurement stick to have a conversation on. So I love that one, because it's systemized Two because it's now defined, you're taking a word like bants or anum. And again, I keep using this example, but I could get into more, but you're actually putting concrete, non-subjective, objective items around it. So it's like, if I said, if I answered the question, what current technology is this prospect using? And I'm able to answer three or four of those. And I'm at, and now. 90 out of a hundred that's passable over. We've just taken this concept of a subjective word, like band, like budget, who have budget. And we've now 
crystallize it. We've put it in our system. Oh my goodness. I love it. And so organizations who are going that direction, who are taking rules of engagement and putting them not in some random Google doc, but bringing it into a day-to-day where it's measurable, actionable, and systematized. I love it. I commend you for it. So I love that. Outside of that, though, I really am a big believer at a fairly early age at startups company. And certainly as you get bigger, man, the emergence of RevOps is awesome. Yeah. And for those that don't know what it is, because not everybody has RevOps, tell them really quickly what RevOps is. Yeah. I think some people are defining it slightly different in different organizations, but it's almost like in the old school language, think of like the chief operations officer, you know, in old school, big companies, you'd be like, there was a CMO, a chief sales officer, a chief operations officer, chief finance officer. It's almost like you've taken the concept of the chief operations officer, by the way, which is an independent functional area that sits on the management team, again, Mm. in old school businesses, and you've brought it down into life in this RevOps thing. And again, they're overseeing in many ways, a mini COO. Now, a lot of them focus just on the revenue chain, like how operationally things are structured, process, business, budget, numbers through the revenue cycle. But a lot of them are taking even a broader view. But the power of it that I've seen is, is some of those old school mentality pieces. Like, look, sales and marketing are and always will be an interesting marriage. Two partners who sometimes get along and sometimes don't. Guess what happens? Sometimes partners don't get along. There's divorces. And if you've ever handled a divorce without some sort of mitigation lawyer, there usually needs to be a third party. It's very difficult. I literally experienced this with a very dear friend. They decided to try not to go for any third party. It was miserable. They were trying to use me. I, I am actually throwing me in the middle. Yeah, you're like, like, I'm not qualified for this. So I'm not signing up for this. I was more talking to them about which furniture, you know, they should take. I guess they were being cheap, but boy, is it powerful. And I'm never advocating for divorce, but I'll tell you, you want to get a divorce done well, you have a third party entity that's objective, real, that kind of can mitigate and bring two people and find the right bell. This RevOps function that I've seen in certain organizations that has a seat at the table, isn't reporting to the sales leader. That isn't going to work. Have you ever had a lawyer? <laughs> well, I won't go into any, you get the analogy, but yeah. you can't have a RevOps person reported to marketing your sales that expect them to be objective. Yeah. A little, a little bias. Just a little bias in there. Let, oh, look, I've had friends in the industry be like, look, I've wanted to do things differently, but obviously my boss is the one paying my check and doing my promotion. So I'm not going to exactly. tell him he's wrong. And so again, you have that third party entity who has a seat at the table, is given the dominion, is given the power to uphold the process, any escalations, you know, it basically doesn't roll to the sales leader, it rolls to this independent entity. It, All of a sudden you've got a divorce lawyer who it's amazing what they can do. Cause truthfully, if they're good, they're going to tell marketing 50% of the time to just shut up and 50% of the time they're going to tell sales to shut up. So I love that. And I love the emergence of RevOps in a lot of these startup companies, more power to you give them the the challenge is they're not given enough say they're growing up. They're these people who are growing up in sales ops or marketing ops. And so a lot of people consider them to be Salesforce admins and they still report to sales or. They don't have the respect because they don't sit on the management team. I'm a big believer. Get them in there, get them on the E-team, especially in startup land, and give them that independent behavior to bring those two together because honestly, it's tough. Those would be three ideas for you to cook coffee. 
No, I love it. I know you're a busy guy, so I'm going to close out, but I, I do love kind of ending on this idea of sales and marketing being a marriage because I 200% agree. And for a good marriage, you need communication. And when I've seen more often than not, it's just not coming to the table and having a communication about what's working, what's not working. So that'll be my free therapy, marriage therapist advice for you. And I've been doing the sales and marketing alignment thing for a minute. It seems to always start about actually communicating effectively. So hopefully that will help some folks out there that are trying to change that relationship and improve the overall revenue agent. So for those that want to get in contact with you, learn more about you, follow your work, what is the best way to get in contact with Gabe Marson? Yes. Um, you can Please do not give us your address. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, that's great. I'm kidding. Uh, you need my social security number for you. Uh, you give me that. that. <laughs> Mother's maiden name. Okay. Yeah. No, look, I truthfully, man, Jeff, back in the day, I was a LinkedIn addict, man. I loved that stuff. It's been a whirlwind the last couple of years, but still love LinkedIn. That's always going to be the best place. Feel free to hit me up there. You just find it at Gabe Larson with an EN, but yeah, hit me up there. I'd love to continue the dialogue. Always happy to chat. Awesome. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate the insights and we will be looking forward to following you and see what you do next. Love it, man. Be good. Talk soon. All right. You too. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.